Clarita here, and I've got a new sponsor, DistroKid. If you want to release your music into the world, DistroKid's the easiest way to get your music into all the major streaming platforms, unlimited uploads, and keep 100% of your royalties. And because you're a Design Freaks listener, you get 30% off. Go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash Design Freaks. DistroKid. This episode is sponsored by Isotope. Their audio software like RX helps to clean up my recordings, and they have a ton of other products on their site, isotope.com. Right now, Ruinous Media and Fretboard Journal listeners save 10% at checkout on any Isotope plugin or bundle using the code FRET10. Isotope designs award-winning software, plugins, hardware, and mobile apps, powered by the highest quality audio processing, machine learning, and strikingly intuitive interfaces so you can focus on your craft. So if you have a podcast or produce music, go to isotope.com slash ruinous and save 10% off your order with the code FRET10. Make your audio sound better. Welcome to another episode of the Design Freaks podcast, where we talk about music industry, art, and design. My name's Clarita. I am your host. I'm a graphic designer, and I like the vinyl records. This is episode 40, best of part one of the Design Freaks podcast. Uh, My very first show aired on Halloween of 2018, so I'm also heading into the third anniversary of the podcast. So uh, thank you all for listening and supporting the show. Uh, So this is a highlight episode, and it's the best of my early shows. And uh, keep in mind, these are clips from the days before I was partnering with Ruinous Media. So they're just a little bit more DIY, a little more punk rock in the beginning. But it's kind of cool to hear how the show has evolved. Uh, I took some highlights from five of my early episodes, and I think this is a great show for new listeners, or if you just want to learn some fun album design history, because those early episodes deal with some pretty heavy hitters in the industry, and I think these stories are fascinating. And so I pretty much uh, just took the fun facts, I extracted the stories out of the conversations we were having for the most part. And I start with Arturo Vega with the origin of the Ramones logo. I talk about Peter Seville for Joy Division, mostly for Unknown Pleasures, Uh, Penny Smith for The Clash, Barney Bubbles of Hawkwind and Stiff Records fame, and much more. And finally, Raymond Pettibon for the Black Flag episode with Kurt Block. Please rate and review and share with anyone else who might enjoy the show. And I do have some great brand new episodes coming up. Lots of fun guests planned, artists, record store owners, collectors, art directors, etc. Of course, designers. Check out all the photos and links that accompany this episode and all episodes at designfreakspodcast.com. Uh, 
You can also contact me there, find socials, donate, etc. And for more music-related podcasts on the Ruinous Media Network, check out ruinousmedia.com. And now, please enjoy the best of the Design Freaks podcast. Part one. Part one. podcast. (laughs) My name is Clarita and I am going to bring you some stories and some fun facts. And uh, this is episode one, everybody. Episode one. Guest number one is Megan Cookie. Hi. Um, Megan is a graphic designer. Sweetie. So for the first like deep dive into the unsung hero graphic designer, very first person I'm going to talk about is Arturo Vega of the Ramones. He was known as the fifth member. He Okay. So Arturo Vega was born in Chihuahua, Mexico. Chihuahua. Fighting <laughs> artist Arturo Vega was arrested in Mexico City with 149 others. The big, bold-faced headline in the Mexican daily El Nacional on February 13th, 1971, new national holiday alert, um, read, Federal Judicial Police Arrest 149 Drug-Addicted Hippies of Both Sexes. So let me show you the picture of the article. So that's the article. So he carried this around with him until he died in 2000. Drogadictos. 13? And then that that event sparked him, a fire being put under him to move to New York. Get the hell out of there because why? Why were they arrested? They were at a house party. Uh, Vega carried this clipping around with him until his death in 2013, a stark reminder of the, his oppre- the oppression he narrowly escaped when he emigrated to New York City. The detained hippies, in quotes, were actually 148 important actors, actresses, artists, writers, Poets and filmmakers of the day, including the famous Chilean filmmaker, guess who? Alejandro Hordorowski. Clipping would become more of a reminder of his hippie, in quotes, past, while he initially moved to New York not long after the arrest to pursue a career in the performing arts. So the rest of this story is going to be basically about the evolution of the logo, how it came to be. I love it. And one of the clues the is in that article. Um, but basically... He became a super fan, really good friends with Joey, and um, he wanted them to stand out on stage. And so he designed a banner for their backdrop. And that's where the um, sans serif Ramones kind of logo came from, just the letters. Um, The font and typography were lifted directly from the headline of El Nacional, the newspaper clipping. Now we're going to get back to the eagle, too. So from there, Vega printed this uh, simple new one-word logo on T-shirts to sell on the road. So I said... Well, you know, I know how to silk screen print because I had already done some of that. I said, why don't we make some t-shirts? Donnie said, uh, t-shirts, what kind of a shirt? What do you mean t-shirts? I said, Ramon's t-shirts. Was there no merch at that point? Mm-hmm. I said, why are we going to put it in? We already had the first what? album, you know, with the first, uh, with the first eagle. And I said, uh, we can put a... Uh, the eagle 
And Johnny just looked at me and said, nobody's going to buy that. Nobody's going to buy a Ramones t-shirt. But, uh, but I did. I did print some t-shirts. I took a bus You're hired. to California. I a love hippie this. bus. It's a hippie bus. And there were still hippie buses. Oh. And everybody had a, a musical instrument. Everybody was playing something. Uh, it was pretty cool. I printed three dozen shirts. And I think they were almost sold by the first show. You know, So it was an instant. It was an instant hit. It was an instant success. Um, the band took off and the Ramones were signed to a deal within a year. Bigger shows were booked and Vega, who was constantly on the lookout for words and symbols for inspiration, began pulling from some unlikely sources. So he found a cool looking eagle and a belt buckle. So again, like in Mexican culture, there's eagles everywhere. It's crazy too, because it's so subversive that they took the presidential seal. <laughs> like, I it, love that. Yeah. And it's it's so punk rock in the right way. So he put together the the presidential seal as their logo, put their names there. Obviously, everybody knows what that looks like. It's on like baby mm -hmm. onesies now. Um, the only thing as like associated with a band, the only visual was the tongue and lips logo that John Pash created for the Rolling Stones in 1971. So Arturo's challenge was different since he was working with an unknown group. Eventually the demand was so great. So they talk about how he was still trying to keep up with demand in his loft, screen printing these shirts. So then soon the deal grew into something much larger um, as he made licensing deals around the world for everything from sneakers and socks to shorts, jackets, wallets, skateboards, baby clothes, hats, and stickers, all burying the logo. In a bizarre coincidence, at the opening of the Queen's exhibit attended by thousands on April 10th, 2016, this was mm. the big Ramones exhibit. In a bizarre coincidence, Christina Gamora wore the arrow shirt this thrift shop find was the same shirt that inspired elements of the logo 40 years ago. She had no clue about its importance. He died in 2013, sorry, 13. People relate to that look because it's a punk rock America. Oh. It's, an, it's like an alternate universe we all want to live in. Travis Ritter. Hello. Thank you for being here. Pleasure. Yes, so we're- Unknown. We're, <laughs> it is an unknown pleasure to be here. Thank you. Okay, so this podcast is supposed to be dedicated to the unsung heroes, right? This person's won countless design awards. He is very famous in the UK. Peter Saville. He designed the very famous Joy Division album cover, Unknown Pleasures. Pretty much know the image I'm talking about, but it basically looks like sound waves, white on black. And... Um, like kind of layered up sound waves. So he also did a bunch of other album covers for Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, New Order, to name a few. Travis, do you? Section 25. 1978. So his problems really began the moment he approached Tony Wilson at a Patti Smith concert in 1978. And it says here that factory just spoiled him rotten. As uh, he explains, the uh, album cover Unknown Pleasures, which is the one we've been talking about, uh, it's linked to 
a figure in the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Astronomy from 1977, very good year. And it is a stacked plot of radio signals from the pulsar. Not only that, it was the very first pulsar ever detected. What happened was a bunch of scientists put all, got all these telescopes, looked up into the sky, and started getting a radio signal from a play, a spot in the sky where it looked like there was nothing, absolutely nothing. So the first thought that they had was, we are being contacted. And so that full, first pulsar was named LGM-1 for Little Green Men. Ooh. It was then renamed after that. But they honestly were battling with, how are we going to announce this? They were struggling with the morality of letting people know that that just reminded me of architecture and morality. Yeah. It's another good album cover by Seville. Cause this was the first one. So they did, you know, anytime there's a first with outer space, you're like, is it aliens? I mean, that's what I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course they figure it out, but also the reason they thought it was intelligent life form was because the signals were coming in with such an accurate frequency. So it was happening at 1.337 seconds precisely. Um, and then they started, um, they used a machine that cut the wavelength. So picture like a machine making wave patterns on a piece of paper, but now picture it instead of uh, drawing a line that it cuts it out. And all those cut out pieces of paper are put together, creating a, like a 3D rendering, uh, like a paper sculpture that looks like those radio waves. So that's what happened first. And then that diagram was drawn for the sake of that uh, Cambridge Encyclopedia. So the diagram, the drawing came after Joy Division tattoos, baby onesies, ashtrays, mosaics, blah, blah, blah. Rugs. Rugs. What else? Um, Duvets. Toupees. (laughs) Toupees. You can get a real nice faux hawk. (laughs) Sleeping bags, bicycles, you know, just all the things. A visual artist and extremely designer adjacent, <laughs> Katie D. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so today's deep dive is going to be Penny Smith. Penny Smith is super cool, and she's a photographer. And she uh, was the photographer for the Clash Record London Calling album cover, and Ray Lowry was the designer who did the layout, but she took the photograph. And I think it's important to acknowledge the photographers. She specializes in black and white portrait photography. So really stark black and white as an artistic choice. Paul smashed his base, which was weird because he was very easygoing guy normally, but this was at the end of a really long tour. They'd been everywhere in America. This was in New York at the end. And uh, I think the audience was not enjoying the show or they were acting snooty or something. And so she happened to catch this moment. Then, like I said, she Barney and this guy, Nick Kent, 
produced Friends magazine. It started out being spelled Friends, and then they changed it to F-R-E-N-D-Z. Um, not sure why. I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't find Maybe that. because psychically they thought in the future the it might show. be associated with that. <laughs> They Good job. <laughs> they took just enough psychedelics to see Ross and... And were like no. just very turned off. It's Brian Standridge. Hello. So getting into Colin Fulcher was mm-hmm. his name, mm. a.k.a. Barney mm. Bubbles. This subject is near and dear to my heart. I love Barney Bubbles. He's one of my design heroes, probably the star that shines brightest in my design galaxy. He had a really prolific career, even though he didn't live very long. But Reasons to be Cheerful by Paul Gorman. Absolutely amazing book. Get this book. He had a multidisciplinary education that included training in cardboard design. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Display and packaging. Mm -hmm. All of these great for Mm -hmm. record uh, design. Everything was leading to that. Everything was leading him. And he it expanded his mind doing the window dressing because it gave him that sense of spatial relationship. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't just an album designer, but we'll get into that. He did a lot of stuff. So July 12th, 1963, the Rolling Stones were booked to play the end of the uh, the end of the year Twickenham Design College Dance. And Barney designed the poster for it. Mm. And I think that was one of the first posters he ever designed for a band. And it's one of the rarest items in um, Rolling Stones history. Um, you knew who else was born during a bombing raid? Who? Keith. Oh, really? Jumping Jack Flash. That's what it's about. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, But he also designed the much admired poster for the band Mule Skinners. And that was Ian McLoggin's first band. He was in Mm. the Small Faces. Yeah. Yeah. And then they turned into the Faces. The Faces faces with Rod. In the 70s. Well, I, I don't know them that well. I only know that one song where he says, your name is Rita. Oh, stay with me. (laughs) Yeah, stay with yeah. me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect magazine. Hi, I'm Rod Stewart. <laughs> stay with me. So here's Barney. This mm-hmm. is this is how eccentric he was. They they all they move into this like six room flat. He suggested they all sleep in the same room so that they can use the other rooms for fun. <laughs> so basically, Kinda he's like, sense, why are we but... putting a bed in every room that's wasting space? Um, he felt like they could be more creative if they used space better. Yeah. Um, he didn't like beds. He used a, He slept in a sleeping bag that he hung on the wall during the day. In 1965 and 1966, he organized these crazy parties happenings Mm -hmm. i'm making air quotes um (laughs) under the name a1 good guys with a z Mm -hmm. and that became kind of his little art collective um he started it with two of his twickenham art college buddies dave wills and roy burge oh when he worked for conrad he designed the archer icon for the strongbow cider 
Oh, yeah. You ever had Strongbow yeah, Cider? Yeah, totally. That was Barney Bubbles. <laughs> of course it was. He's everywhere. Yeah. But he would sometimes play air guitar with rulers and his T-squares and also had a band called The Erections and they would play air guitar. Oh, wow. As like a, a flash mob or whatever. Like, a, like an art thing. <laughs> yeah, out in public. Oh, wow. He once performed with an air guitar band called The Erections in front of a bank of static TVs. Did he invent air guitar? I think he did. (laughs) So he bought a bunch of projectors. So he wanted to start doing weirder and weirder stuff. So he bought a bunch of projectors and um, he started creating the bubble effect by mixing um, like food coloring with oil and then sandwiching it between two kind of glass slides. He invented it. Are you? Can we do the (laughs) cha-ching? Oh, my God. There you go. Rock and roll I'm not shows? sure if he was the first one, but he was the first he one to pro- to project it. Because they he did also, it in San Francisco too, that's right? That's him. He went to San Francisco. Oh my god! What? He went to San Fillmore? Francisco, and when Pink Floyd played at the Fillmore, he did his projection, and it blew everyone's minds because no one had done anything that cool. That is rad. And he then went back to London because he got depressed. So. You're welcome, San Francisco. (laughs) You're welcome, America. Every psych band ever. (laughs) Yeah, so that's when he started to do that. And then when the the lights heated the mixture, um, he created the bubble effect. And that's eventually how he got his name, Barney Bubbles. Ah, Um, But he also had other nicknames. But it's cooler than Fulcher, too. His first nickname was Maximilian. And then it was like... Where'd Barney come from? Barnbuckle or something. Uh, It came from... The other Barnbuckle name, oh, I can't okay. remember, but he Barn shortened it bubbles. to Barney. <laughs> and pretty soon they were spending every Saturday night projecting at psychedelic clubs such as the UFO in Middle Earth. Uh-huh. Um, then they got a Super 8 camera. Oh. So then they started projecting that footage, mixing and in the footage, bubble. mixing that over the bubbles, Ooh, yeah. um, using movie classics with Lon Chaney, mixing those in, creating multimedia visuals. And then by the second second week, the projections were called the Barney Bubbles Light Show. Wow! Even though by the was, second week, yeah, so people were already so they, like, they kind of, people liked it. This is the bit. best thing we've people ever seen. People kind of liked it. They liked it. Um, He's Mr. Serendipity so far. But he was also so good at everything. He was setting the standard on so yeah. many things, like especially with album design. Mm-hmm. He was the best. So there's kind of a crazy family tree of stuff that happens with Friends Magazine, the Portobello Space, and um, Teen Burger. 726, Nick Turner talks about sleeping in Barney's cupboard. (laughs) (laughs) I met Barney. I told him about the band and I invited him to come to a gig. Um, And then I told him I didn't have anywhere to live. And he said, oh, you can come and sleep on my floor. (laughs) which I did, and I ended up sleeping in his cupboard for some time. You know, that was very nice. And Barney thought the um, the whole thing was wonderful. Then he's, you know, became involved with um, design for the band, you know, through me, I guess. I asked him if he'd design a poster for us. Then at Friends, he gained the reputation of becoming a genius and setting new standards. Mm. Um, and then from from Friends, he took two writers from the magazine 
and a lighting psychedelic lighting designer named Jonathan Smeaton, who became Liquid Len. (laughs) That became his name. They would eventually all team up with and join Hawkwind. And he's interested in fantasy illustration. And uh, he kind of wants to go whole hawk and he wants to create a whole visual identity for Hawkwind. Idea of Hawkwind, though, it's like a lot of bands do that now. Mm-hmm. But nobody was thinking of it like that back then. No. They would just think of maybe the, the LP cover. Yeah. And then maybe they'd have a special outfit for the stage. Not like a full production like this. Right. Amazing. So Bubbles left Hawkwind around the same time as Nick Turner, apparently in solidarity with, because he got kicked out. Nick and Barney kept doing commission work together. Kind of goes into here about how he was responsible for Stiff Records logo, bunch of record label logos, and then interesting stuff even after hawkwind he was still experimenting yeah stiff was like a new start for him and he could now like kind of begin anew Mm -hmm. (laughs) regular dude and musician uh millions of albums produced Mr. Kurt Block. And how well do you know Photoshop? Have you ever taken a class? No, I've never taken a class of Photoshop, but, you know, I've definitely had Photoshop for a long time. Well, in in, in fact, I think, you know, when, when did the first Photoshop come out? We had, we did have the little, uh, the little three and a uh, half inch floppy disk with the with the application with the program called photoshop it was two words whoa um not that you could really do anything <laughs> i don't think you could you know, but make, you've done so much <laughs> but but i was you know aware of that from 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 back then um was it more similar to like ms paint back then it must have been you know yeah. honestly i don't remember what it was like but yeah. i probably still have that little disk with photo shop on it oh my god uh, because I, i've always taken photos and printed pictures in dark rooms and yeah and things like that so when <clears throat> like those early computer forays were not very valuable because you couldn't actually do anything like do design work yeah. on on that sort of thing even though i did i remember the one of the fastbacks demo tapes um, was done on a uh, the, the if you want to slow down step on the gas the demo tape that we did in 1985 was you know done on uh, on the Mac really? one, 128 you know like back then there was no you, you there was no typesetting yeah available to the layman oh I get it yeah and um, so we had a couple places that that did photo typesetting and you could go there and you know tell them what you wanted and specify look through their type books and see what typefaces they had and and then you'd go home with a you know basically a, a crappy half-assed drafting table built out of you know plywood and a you know i think at one point i did buy a t square with a clear thing on it so you could actually yeah. do so you could actually do things straight you know, <clears throat> Uh, you know, we had a couple, you know, a couple of people sometimes would draw a, um, you know, draw like our first Fastbacks album had a uh, 
had a cartoon for the mm-hmm. the cover, but it was just a it was just black and white. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, well, we can we can make this cool and you know, did overlays, you know, CMYK or CMY overlays so we could add color to it. And, okay. And stuff like that. And you know, of course that was you know, that was you're just fishing, you're just trying things out and seeing and there was no you know, you could you could cut your overlays Mm-hmm. Um, but you, there was no way to actually know what it looked like mm-hmm. <clears throat> because you could get a color key made, like if you've ever seen those, yeah. the plastic layers and stuff, which are super cool, but they cost a fortune, you know, like mm-hmm. hundreds of dollars for a LP cover sized color key. And it's like, we don't, we don't have any money. We don't have any <laughs> money to make the record. We're like, sounds good. Please enjoy this commercial for Tony's Pizzeria. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about our main event. And that is Raymond Pettibon. Today we're interviewing a stomach. Hello there. What is life like as a stomach? Oh, boy, it was humdrum. I mean, until what's-his-name discovered Tony's Pizza. Tony's Pizza? Yeah, I was suffering from the pizza cravings until Tony's came along. Crispy crust and zesty sauces. (laughs) Wow. And so now... What's that? Another pizza craving. Just thinking about Tony's sets it off. Oh, where where are you going? He's going to get a Tony's pizza. And I follow him anywhere. Does your stomach send you pizza craving signals? Oh, wow. Tony's, the pizza craver's pizza. Available at the concession stand. While we were away, we started a band called the Circuit Breakers. What's our first album called? The album is called Blown. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about Raymond Pettibon. Pettibone? Pettibone. 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 I guess it's 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 probably a made-up name, so is there a little button to click on that you can have it pronounced Raymond oh, Pettibone? We should do that. He's very French, yes. Yeah, Raymond so, Pettibone. So his dad gave him the nickname. So he was born Raymond Ginn. He is Greg Ginn's brother, Greg Ginn of Black Flag. And SST Records. Um, and it says here that his dad named him Petit Bon, like little good one. Um, so he was born in 1957 in Tucson, Arizona. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. He became the artist for SST Records. And he's sort of like the zine king. He's done probably thousands of zines. Um, he earned an economics degree from UCLA in 1977. And worked as a high school math teacher. Right, right, and 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 so he was uh, he was a teacher, and before he became a counterculture. Isn't that weird? But he wasn't an art teacher; he was a math math teacher. teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Opposite. <clears throat> and then when when the uh, when the the, the 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 torch of punk rock lit in Seattle, it was a very small scene. There was, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. There was was it like the telepaths and. Yeah, the, the, you know, t- telepaths actually, you know, the telepaths actually started in in 1975 <clears throat> and they were more, you know, they were they were inspired by, you know, the Stooges and <laughs> rebel. They were rebellious, rebellious, rebellious in some ways, but actually their music is is absolute just killer rock and roll. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so tell me, tell us more about the when punk started happening in Seattle. 
Well, I think or grunge. That's what I want to know about. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like when 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 I was a teenager in Seattle, there was the telepaths were to us the most accomplished band of of young people of, of our age. You know, we're like, wow, they they can play 21st century schizoid man by King Crimson. They Whoa. can get through that and play all the parts and and not stop halfway through. And um, you know, well, we're we, you know, we're, they were we were roughly the same age as they are. Were, were these at house parties? Um, well, we first saw like the the first bands that we saw. You know, local bands. We we did see the Telepaths because they were, you know, they were one of the few you know, as established as a band could be at that point that was not, I mean, they're, you know, at this time they're 17, 18, 19 years old. So they're not, you know, they're not playing in bars. They're playing mostly original songs, you know, so they're like anything else. There was no, there was no home base for bands like that until the club, the bird opened up. Where was the bird? 109 Spring Street, I think. Um, and the, the original Bird only lasted a few months before it was shut, shut down by the police. But, um, oh. you know, it, it, my first band, The Cheaters, we would not have really probably done anything if it was not for The Bird. Because, you know, we'd, we'd go, we, you'd run into the same people. I mean, we we grew up in a lake city. We didn't grow up in the U District. We weren't Roosevelt. We didn't go, we weren't, you know, co-mingled with the same people that okay. were starting bands in Seattle. We didn't know. We just had a, we had a band in my parents' basement <laughs> and then, you know, trying to learn how to play songs that were way too hard for us to, to learn. And then what were your first song? What was your first show like in your first song? Uh, well, the, the, our first show was at the bird because okay. like, it, it wasn't like we were, you know, fumbling around until then we heard, um, you know, we, d- we heard the Ramones, Mm-hmm. And we heard um, the Saints, and we heard the Sex mm-hmm. Pistol singles, and the Damned, and you know those those first records from 1977. It was like right when we started getting together, and I think one of the first things we did is we learned the first three songs in the fr- of uh, the second Blister Cult record, Tyranny and Mutation. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, that's that's you know that was our goal to have this like scary, sinister sort of sounding rock band, <laughs> except 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 it's like well this this music. I mean, you know, we just had started playing instruments you know so it was like <laughs> it was it was so far out of our our abilities to play You're it going from zero to blue oyster Cult right right as a 16 year old <clears throat> yeah 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 and you know god bless us for trying but right. then, no, that's and then, uh, <laughs> then 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 you know we saw this band the telepaths I, maybe they opened a show mm-hmm. uh that we saw and it was like whoa that's kind of like a real professional band we'd heard of them and mm-hmm. another band uncle cookie who oh. um had uh, conrad uno from egg studio uh uh notoriety was was in that band and they were another band they they weren't they weren't punk per se but they were absolutely diy mm-hmm. in that they were a four-piece band there's two guitar players bass player drummer and they brought their own PA. They brought their own light show. You know, they had, Whoa. you know, built, you know, coffee cans spray painted black with lights in them. And they had a controller that that Uno operated, like stepped on different buttons to change the lights when they were playing. It's like, 
whoa, they can do all this themselves. <laughs> and, and they, you know, they seemed like they're a million years older than we were, but yeah, know, actually they, were they weren't. Like 28 or something. <laughs> 24 or yeah. 23. But they were, you know, they were just, they, they just had been playing a little bit longer and they, you yeah. know, it's like, wow, they sound like a real band and God, maybe we could be like that. And then, you know, then we heard the Ramones and we heard all the punk bands are like, well, this is really what we want to do. We just, yeah. we just wanted to sound like the toughest music we could find, you know, like, which at that time, <laughs> maybe the, tough. the toughest record that was out there was the first album by Montrose. But, you know, that, and every time we'd get a record, you know, whether it was Scorpions Fly to the Rainbow or something, we, Grand Funk Railroad, mm-hmm. you know, we did, whatever you could put on and just have a you know, because we're like fifteen-year-old kids, we just wanted like the most, the most gnarly sounding music, and you know, you were never a fifteen-year-old kid. <laughs> and you know, like raw power by the the Stooges. Oh, you know, he yeah. put that. It's like, God, how can they just make this? It just sounds like they just want to, you it's know, powerful, and it just stuff. makes you just want to kill. You know, it's want to wreck stuff, and and you know, that's what we wanted to do. But it's like, well, how do you? You know, we didn't, there was no, no way to figure out how to do stuff really like, and we didn't have any, nobody had any money. We had just had the worst instruments right. and, and he's like, well, all we wanted is a Les Paul Jr. and a Marshall half stack mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to make, you know, just stuff sound tough and killer. And yeah. I guess all my, ever since then, I haven't really changed at all. <laughs> Get back to the story. So um, Greg Ginn found out that there was another band called Panic. Now, I kind of want to hear what this band sounded like because that would have been a great name. But um, he found out uh, they couldn't use the name. So Raymond suggested the name Black Flag. And my my suspicion is that he had done the drawing first and then decided to that that would be a great name. So again... There was the artwork came first, and then the band kind of adopted the artwork. But I also think that not only did the artwork um, lend itself, like he named the band, he he created the four bars logo. Um, but because all of his artwork became associated with the band, they became an art punk band. Anyway, when he showed them the four bars logo, they all freaked out. They loved it. They were like, what? And also, Henry Rollins admitted later that he didn't know that it was supposed to look like a waving flag. He started to make just tons of flyers for them, album covers, and then all their merch. The shirts, stickers. They made skateboards. Um, so just to talk about the logo for a quick sec, I was wondering, what is that typeface? It looks so familiar it's the law and order typeface too. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's called Frizz Quadrata. But what's interesting about the about that typeface, mm-hmm. as well as the four bars, the the yes. actual black flag. To say nothing of the uh, the bug spray black flag. You know, it, it it's so genius on so many levels. Was that around? <clears throat> Was the bug spray around before? Oh, absolutely. The band? I'm sure that it's I'm old. sure that the, the the bug spray is is absolutely the lineage anything. of. But see, he doesn't admit it, though. Yeah, you know, probably can't. (laughs) He'll get sprayed. He he probably can't, you know, because, you know, 
they probably no way take it away from but him. But it does. The, even the logo looks a little bit similar. Oh, abs- absolutely. Now, but you do realize that the first Black Flag single when it came out. No, tell me. Had neither the bars nor the typeface. Oh. The original copy of their first that first uh, four song EP did not have either of those things on it. Hmm. it you know the the typeface was different, and like subsequent pressings have changed have have you know changed to the uh, the frizz quadrata. So maybe when they were, yeah, maybe it took a while to get that going. The- Not long, because I think by the by that yeah. the second the twelve inch the, uh, um, the uh, artwork was set. Yeah, jealous again. They had the ah. uh, they had the bars and the typeface, but genius, so genius. And then just like Peter Seville, just like there's so many uh, parodies of it too. That like we were talking about in episode or was it episode two with. Um, Peter Seville, when I was talking to Travis Ritter, how it kind of takes off out of their control. So there's so many versions of the Black Flag logo. I've seen all these different tattoos, and um, there's the Kathy comic, Ack Flag, where there's four Kathys there. Well, then there's, to say nothing of the band Off. Yes, which off. A bug spray. It's absolutely genius. <laughs> he even kept the exclamation point. Oh yeah, 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 oh. and it's Raymond Pettibone. I mean, he he he. That is you know, He took his own thing even to the next further level. Any other Black Flag or rock history tidbits? I just I have to remember the first time we saw Black Flag in Seattle oh, yeah. was. Um, I'm not sure where their show was supposed to be, but it it was it was canceled or shut down at the at the last minute. Mm-hmm. And they ended up uh, ended up playing it at a house in the university district. What? Instead of their their regular show, and I, I, I honestly can't quite I can't quite remember the the order of events or why that it got uh, why it was canceled or whatnot. But we'd never, you know, we had that first Black Flag forty five, and just thought, you know, this is like the most radical. This is absolutely the most radical thing of all time. And you know, whatever year that was, nineteen eighty, maybe. It was, it was ferocious sounding, like in a way that recordings weren't ferocious back then. And uh, then then they ended up, you know, wheeling their gear into our, our buddy's house in the U District in a, you know. It was just, your buddy's house? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're like, well, you know, well, you can come and play at our at our house. So they, you know, wheeled in the 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 Lucite drum set and the PV full stack. Why was stack. the show canceled? Do you, I, you know, I can't remember the actual reason, but the club maybe have gone away. I don't even remember where we're, that, that, that's an interesting question. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. see if I can uh, see if I can ascertain that. But uh, and you remember the show pretty well. Oh, <laughs> yeah. do I ever? <laughs> you know, there was maybe twenty, you know, twenty or twenty five kids in there, and and you know, seeing. <laughs> Black Flag, uh, you know, in 1980, you know, in a in a in a living room of a house, Whoa. it was like absolutely nothing we'd ever seen before. You know, did it, it just it, blow your face off? It just was. I mean, it was. It was. Yeah, it, in in every way. I mean, it was so loud, <laughs> but it was so. You know, there's there's loud and there's kick ass and there's loud and kick ass and it it Whoa. it just it, you know it, it, did anyone record it no one uh, had any probably, way to probably not if if they, if they did the recording would be <laughs> you know you wouldn't you know your brains would be absolutely fried 
you know, a bunch of 19 year old kids drinking cheap beer and, and, you know, listening to Black Flag play in a living room. What else? Did they play stuff you hadn't heard before? Oh, for, for sure. I mean, there's only four songs. We'd only known four songs. Maybe, I don't know if Decline of Western Civilization was out at that point yet or uh-huh. not, but that was the next, you know, that was. They were probably playing those songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was obviously no internet or anything like that, but, you know, we knew they were a notorious band and that they were, a lot of their shows got shut down because they were radical and, and loud right. and incited problems and stuff. And But that's exactly what we wanted out of music. We right. wanted dangerous music that incited problems. I'll, I'll, I'll come down here. We can talk about graphic design for hours and hours <laughs> and hours, too. Absolutely. I love it. Frizz Quadrata. You could sign me off by saying, just be killer. <laughs>